blessings of love and of fear God, I love my church, I don't even care who he is Don't even care who he Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Every Little Voice, the podcast on community music brought to you by all of us at Community Music Schools of Toronto, which is expanding from the Regent Park School of Music. And we're delighted to present season four. Enjoy. And if your little voice and my little voice get together one we make a joyful noise and my family, music lessons were a privilege and a responsibility. My parents wanted to track my progress in my music education through exams, so this was the framework within which I understood my relationship to playing music. It was achievement-based, primarily solo, repetitive practice. I was recounting this experience to music educator Parmela Atarawala, and here's what she pointed out. Well, I was just going to make a comment about the, the concept of um exams because again it's something nobody's really thought about it it's just been the way things have taken place over the last probably about a century i I believe when the conservatory system came to toronto first maybe it's a little bit less than a century but you know it's also just the way that we're educated this western way of educating is about exams in our house the rule was that we had to practice for half an hour every day My eyes would stay glued to the clock, making sure I never went a second over 30 minutes. My little sister, Tomas, also a graduate of the Community Music Schools of Toronto, remembers our childhood routine well. Here's a peek into one of our more sisterly conversations. Because I felt like uh, a little bit like I was being pressured to keep on practicing and playing. I think it took a little bit of enjoyment out of it. Um, growing up, when I started transitioning into like percussion and trying, and especially when I got into the xylophone, thanks to Tim at RPSM, now known as Community Music Schools of Toronto, it was a lot more of an enjoyable experience. I really started enjoying what I was doing because I was able to like, you know, explore songs that I liked on my own. I wasn't, I didn't feel pressured to like just play for the sake of playing, but play because I enjoyed it. And I think towards the the end of my uh, piano practicing, (laughs) like years, I would guess piano lesson years, I did start to enjoy it more as well because there was less of a pressure to, to complete the what are they called? The royal grade levels? The RCM exam? After I finished my final exam, I could just kind of like chill and play whatever because I didn't want to do any more. And so that's when that became a lot more enjoyable for me too. I felt like we were lucky too. Um, Andrew, our piano teacher, he wasn't like really pressuring us to complete the exams that was that was yes. that was parental pressure all the way yeah 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 it was definitely parental pressure Andrew our teacher was really great and once I, I remember telling him once that you know I'm not actually that into doing the RCM exams and he's like why are we even practicing for them let's just play songs that you like and it, yeah it was really great having that kind of influence in our life too <laughs> I'm proud of Tomas for advocating for her musical interests. When I was school-aged, 
I was really academically competitive, so I tended to fit music practice into that mold. I also wanted to please my parents and my music teachers, so I always accepted what others suggested to be appropriate as a next step for me. These days, I wonder, how does one decide what to play? As a teacher, what do you take into consideration to decide what's appropriate? As a learner, when and how do you determine your own direction? In the presence of a curriculum, navigation requires nuance and compromise. Here's music educator Bina John's thoughts on the matter. Oh, I think Pamela Atrawala, in developing the new curriculum for Regent Park School of Music, hit the nail on the head. And so basically, she uses Christopher Small's definition of music as a relational art. So if the essence of music is relational and making music with others, then we need to re-examine what we're teaching, why we're teaching, right? So post-George Floyd, I think we all came through a reckoning that, oh my goodness, things aren't the way they should be. And at the Faculty of Music, there were many students who, after George Floyd, wrote a call to action and said, you know what, what's happening at the Faculty of Music, it can't happen anymore. There's too much concentration on Western art. Bina addressed the effect of the George Floyd protests on education systems. We talked a bit about this in episode one, and it's probably not the last time you'll hear about it. To confront the systemic bias favoring music from Western cultures, we can advocate for the inclusion of more voices, perhaps in the form of music from more cultures. But before moving forward, we have to acknowledge the nuances of culture. Culture isn't just influenced by ethnicity. It's something that's experienced and created by people, and therefore also affected by time and place. And since we're talking in the context of youth in Toronto, our wonderfully diverse city, there are numerous influences that may interact and inform an individual's cultural experiences and personal identity. The Community Music Schools of Toronto's nurturing curriculum highlights the necessity of non-essentialized musicking. And this means to make no presumptions about students, nor styles of music, based on surface impressions or stereotypes. To advocate for greater diversity in music curricula is to create space for more voices. This space, though, remains a site of choice. Learners must feel empowered to inform their own experiences. And in this model, educators can embrace leading through following. Now, is there anything an educator has to carefully consider when teaching music from a diverse range of cultures? Here's Parmela again. That's another one of the big question marks that we're facing right now. And it's part of this whole question of equity and also ownership, cultural ownership, which we also haven't thought about. And, and you know, there's something that the concept of colonialism was also was about extracting, right? Going to a place and extracting not only the resources of the, the physical land itself, but also of the peoples and the cultures. And so we find, for example, in Mozart, there are all sorts of exoticisms. Like he was constantly trying to emulate the Turkish artists that were around Austria at the time and that were exotic and interesting. Would that be allowed today? Hmm. Problematic. But there's another aspect that I want to talk about with regards to this question of repertoire, because repertoire also presupposes that we're recreating something that's already been created. So for you as a cellist to be thinking about the fact that, you know, that you're wanting repertoire that's not necessarily created by that Eurocentric person or that person of European heritage, part of the dearth of that, of there being other repertoire is because we don't talk about creating ourselves, right? 
So at some point, Western classical or Western art music stopped being creative. We, we created a division between the performer and the creator. So there's the performer and the composer, and they're not usually the same person. And that really only happened, I think, at the beginning of the 20th century. And that was because of recording and because people wanted to hear like a, a finished product, something that they knew about already. You know, they wanted to hear it and recreating became important. But if we learn to create at the same time that we learn to recreate, then we wouldn't have this absence of multiple voices. This is a lot to unpack. So here's a take on it all from my little sister. Tom, how did you feel about the repertoire that I'm assuming was mostly assigned to you as a child? I enjoyed it. Like, uh, Andrew's quite well-versed in jazz, and he's like an incredibly talented jazz musician. Side note. Andrew is our family's piano teacher. He taught my sisters and I over the span of 25 years. Shout out to Andrew. So when we weren't doing anything that was related to RCM exams, we would learn a lot of jazz. And I, I actually really enjoyed that. That was, I think, some of the most enjoyable pieces that I played. All of the RCM related stuff, that was probably not as enjoyable. I kind of just wanted to get it over with. So, and again, I wasn't as passionate about music when I was younger, like, and I definitely didn't want to practice as much. And when you're preparing for exams and tests, not practicing is pretty much your biggest nightmare because you have a, a deadline coming up that you have to hit. So that, I definitely enjoyed more of the jazz stuff and um, everything else I kind of just wanted to get through and get done. I was a lot more grateful for all this stuff, all the techniques that I learned later on in life, like later on when I was learning music, because it is good to uh, an extent to have like that base. But I definitely remember being scales really frustrated with having to do it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> scales, so many scales, yeah. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't my cup of tea, but I was definitely grateful for it later. <laughs> what about in your percussion lessons? Oh yeah, during my percussion, that was, it was pretty much anything I wanted to learn. Tim had like this great big book of songs that, um, that he thought were great and I and he would let me listen to each one. We would watch performances of it before playing. And I really enjoyed that because I could choose whatever I wanted to play. We could go at whatever pace I was comfortable with. And that was a really enjoyable time. I really enjoyed the pieces I learned from Tim. I've been thinking a lot about the relational work of teaching youth. When I was a young learner, I often understood my music teachers as these objectified leaders. They were people who knew best how to cultivate my skills as a musician. And so coming from their location of wisdom and skill, repertoire was something that was assigned to me. It's something that somebody else determined and my role was to accept it. But if I remember my music teachers as people who I had human relationships with, I can easily identify what best nurtured my artistry, but also my well-being. One example is that I really liked teachers who didn't call me out for not practicing enough who let me feel safer and less embarrassed, even if our lesson was just reiterating the things I learned than forgot from previous weeks. In hindsight, this sounds so basic to me, but shame is a powerful tool that some educators tend to wield. In speaking with Parmala Tariwala and Bina John, both academics and educators, I'd become increasingly aware of how the shape of music education was being challenged in Canadian university settings. As a non-music major, this awareness developed a whole new world of questions for me. 
In what ways does higher music education privilege Eurocentric tradition? And is that something that's changing with the times? I had the opportunity to discuss the topic with Sarah Beijang, Dean of York University's School of Arts, Media, Performance, and Design. Certainly in the last two years, the effects of the pandemic and related long overdue racial reckonings and real engagement with the, especially the TRC here in Canada. That's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Have really moved conversations that might have been happening in the background or at the margins really to the center in, a, in an incredibly powerful way. And I will say right now, in all honesty, much of that has been driven by students. When you're talking about systemic change, you're talking about a system. And a system is by definition made up of many different parts. So expecting that one part can change and that somehow that will transform the system is always an incomplete move. So student engagement and student advocacy and student activism is really critical. So expecting that somehow students are going to be responsible for systemic change is only the first part. Students are an important catalyst and we should always keep them at our center of focus because ultimately what we're doing, we are doing in, through, with, and, and for our students. But real systemic change has to hit every part of the system. So it, it has to be taken up robustly by, by faculty at all levels. So where do we go from here? So I'm very much learning, but I see an, a, a real opportunity right now, again, in some ways focused through the lens of, of the pandemic, that there is an opportunity to really get into some of the more fundamental questions about what we teach, who we teach, why we teach, and what do we expect the outcomes of these exercises to be. So this feels like a crucial moment. Let's bring it back to Parmela. How do you see the way we think about education evolving in Canada? I think that, you know, that's one thing. So that's why I, I talk about really the importance of improvising, which is the beginning of creating and composing. At the moment, the conversation in Canada has been very tied to appropriating Indigenous arts and in Indigenous expressive culture. And there's really a question about if we take that argument and push it towards or, or extend it to all of the peoples who've ever been colonized, then yes, we do have to think very, very carefully about appropriation. And we have to think about the ethics of how we go about learning musics that have cultural importance to different kinds of people. But, you know, in a city like Toronto, you've got people from all over the world. You have artists from all over the world who can teach in a culturally appropriate way. And I think that's the thing is to call on them and have them be part of this evolution that we're going through so that we do it in, in an ethically responsible way. I mean, really, it's about ethical responsibility in terms of how we manage our relationships with people and with cultures. And, you know, it's not, not to say that we're not going to make mistakes. People will make, will make mistakes. But if we really go into the relationship building in a genuine and authentic way, I think that's the way to start. It's one of those things that can't be resolved if it's not tried. And with that comes error. But there must be a process to find answers. I think there is an opportunity and a recognition that we have to truly become more learner responsive. 
And there's a lot of conversation around being student centered, but I would say that that's very different than being learner responsive and really reaching into active learning environments, which is not just about how do we teach students better or what do students need to learn, but what are the co-creative relationships that we need to form between the different people who are participants in the learning exercise. And that's a that's a really challenging thing because it gets to the question of hierarchies and authority and power. Sarah really got me there. My experience with music was deeply informed by hierarchies and power. So let's bring it back to my little picture, my experience of music education as a school-aged youth. There are a lot of power structures influencing what was expected of me and how I made decisions. Here's me and Tom looking back on our childhood. I remember as a kid, like, um, especially when I was like younger, probably yeah, prior to high school age, feeling like not so great, not, not feeling like I loved piano and not understanding why I needed to practice two instruments. And, you know, why did I actually have to choose two instruments? Right? Like, ah! Um, I remember crying over the piano, right? I remember getting into fights with dad about, um, about piano. I remember feeling so much pressure to succeed in piano because of the financial stress that it put on our family. Can we take a minute to acknowledge that? That's, oh my gosh, that's <sighs> a huge thing. Even if I never, even if I didn't have necessarily like the same amount, same type of pressure, I would say, as you did, I definitely felt the pressure to at least do the minimum to feel like I was progressing because every it all the every argument would be this is a lot of money. This is it's a lot of money to put you through music education. Every week you go to these lessons, you have to be taking something from it because it costs a lot of money. And that's definitely it weighs a lot on you but i also found that it drove me away a bit more i, I was always very stubborn <laughs> uh whenever when i got into fights all the time with uh our parents about not doing things and i felt like i uh, <laughs> i continued to not do those things and maybe maybe partly as of like a, a part of rebellion maybe just because i just I don't know. I just felt so disconnected. I, I, I just getting into those arguments made me feel like, oh, maybe if I just don't practice, I don't have yeah. to do it anymore. I don't have to continue because yeah, but no, it never stops. <laughs> okay. right. paying every time and every week. I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't working the way yeah. I thought it would. But yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's really hard to find yourself enjoying music when you feel like there's a little pressure in that financial sense, for sure. <laughs> when it came to my music education, I had no expectations outside of what I knew. My progression through the framework of exams was an obvious choice in my family because it was a respected system that reflected well-known traditions of music. To my parents, of Jamaican and Filipino origin, participating and succeeding in such a system indicated assimilation. My parents were very clear in their desire and determination for us to experience belonging, high quality education, and a commitment to hard work that would help us raise our status as Canadians. And they wanted us to disprove stereotypes we might face, being black kids coming from a poorer household. The thing is, 
Assimilation into the Eurocentric aspects of Canadian culture doesn't capture the entirety of my identity or values. So sometimes I feel like this feature of my education left me with a lot of things to unlearn. My process of unlearning is what brings me here today, imagining different possibilities. A music education is a million things at once. It's a site of history with the power to reflect tradition, colonialism, stories of relocation, and hybridization. It's a site of practice and discipline, of competition and challenge. And then at the same time, it's a site of playfulness, peace, and safety. I think it's important to carefully inspect how we imagine and understand music education, to provide an inclusive environment, to nourish creativity, and most of all, to nurture youthful souls. Thank you for listening to Every Little Voice Season 4. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and please go to www.communitymusic.org to learn more about our organization. I'd like to thank our interviewees, starting with Tomas Muir, also Drs. Sarah Bay Chang, Bina John, and Parmala Atariwala. We couldn't do this amazing season without our co-producers. That's Danielle Muir, and Evan Desonier, thank you so much for all your hard work. All the music that you're hearing this episode is performed by students from the Community Music Schools of Toronto in collaboration with our friends at the Kingsway Music Library. Tune in next month for the next installment of Season 4 of Every Little Voice. Thank you for listening.